You've already heard it, but during this Christmas season, you're going to hear the phrase quite often, Jesus is the reason for the season. It's obvious there's a lot about the season that Jesus is not the reason for. He's not the reason for all of the commercialization that takes place. He's not the reason for Santa Claus, and the list can go on and on. But those of us who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know why Jesus is the reason for this season. We know that during this season, we as Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt upon this earth. For the next three Sundays, I want to focus in on three different passages that relate to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to make sure that during this season, we do not squeeze Jesus out of it. I want us to make sure that Jesus takes first and center role in each of our lives, that we don't allow all that goes on around us to forget who he is and to forget what he has done. All of Scripture exalts Christ. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, it exalts Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that every scripture, every word, or every phrase bleeds Jesus. But I am saying that the theme of scripture overall is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews is about Christ. And particularly, it's about the greatness of Christ. When you study this book, it is clear that the author wants us to know that Jesus is greater than everyone and that Jesus is greater than everything. Hebrews proclaims that Jesus is greater than the prophets, that Jesus is greater than the angels, that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than Joshua, that he's greater than Aaron, that he's greater than Melchizedek. Whatever personality you might think of in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is superior to that individual. And not only that, but Jesus is, his ministry is superior to the Old Testament ministry. His covenant that he inaugurated is far superior to the Old Covenant. Hebrews declares that without a shadow of the doubt. Our text, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, 14 through 16, proclaims the greatness of Jesus. It does so by presenting Jesus as a priest. It proclaims the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The whole of Scripture declares that Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is also king. Hebrews 
emphasizes the fact that Jesus is priest. And that truth sometimes gets ignored, sometimes it gets neglected, sometimes it does not have the radical impact upon us that it should. But I believe this morning, as we faithfully consider the words of the rite of Hebrews, we will see that as he presents the priesthood of Jesus, it is a difference maker. It is to have a radical impact upon the lives of the people of God. So it's not just a truth that we hold to about Jesus, but it is a truth that transforms us and causes us to live differently. As the writer of Hebrews talks about the priesthood of Jesus, he believes that truth should explode into our lives and cause us to be people who hold tenaciously to a particular belief and also be a people that come charging and running to God in each and every situation of life. There are many scriptures that proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ, but our text that we want to consider today proclaims Jesus is great as a priest. And once we comprehend that and understand it from the perspective of the writer of Hebrews, it makes a difference. And so as I approach this text, I want us to do so from the subject of the fact that we are to hold fast and draw near. The the priesthood of Christ exhorts and moves and motivates the people of God to hold fast and to draw near. These are the two exhortations that arise from our text in light of the priesthood of Jesus. The first exhortation that arises from our text is that we are to hold fast to our confession. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. And this exhortation It comes on the heels of two significant verses that are found in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 is a very familiar verse. 13 is less familiar, but both of these verses are significant. The writer of Hebrews writes in verses 12 and 13, he says, for the word of God is living, and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then he makes this profound statement in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting his readers to enter into the spiritual rest of salvation 
And he warns them that if they do not do it, they will be judged by this word that is living and effective and cutting and penetrating and discerning and not only be judged by the word of God, but by the God of the word. And who is this God of the word? It's the God of the word who sees everything. Nothing escapes God's eyes. Everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we think is open to our God. And having said that, the writer of Hebrews exhorts his readers to hold fast to their confession. And as he gives that exhortation, he presents it in a way of a sandwich. I've used that illustration before, that sometimes biblical truth is presented as a sandwich where you have the two slices of bread and the meat. Well, there are two slices of bread that are mentioned in verse 14 and verse 15. And those slices of bread are the reasons why you and I must hold fast our confession. And once we look at these slices of bread, then we will dive into the meat of the sandwich. But the first slice of bread is hold fast to your confession since Jesus is a great high priest. Jesus is a great high priest. Now, that phrase, high priest, the original readers would have understood it fully because they were Jewish Christians. The the phrase high priest originates in the Old Testament. And when you look at the Old Testament, the first high priest was Aaron. And subsequent high priests came from the line of Aaron. The high priest played a significant role in the religion of Jews. God established it that way. High priests were decked out. I mean, they were dressed to the T. They had robes and diamonds and all kind of things on their, their garments. They were special, recognized individuals. And one particular task that a high priest had that no other individual had was on one day out of the year. The high priest, one particular person, could go into the presence of God, into the holies of holies, and offer sacrifice for the people. That was an unheard thing, that an individual could go into the very presence of God and access God. And the only one who could do that once a year on one particular day was the high priest. During the time of Jesus, there were high priests. In fact, we find out that as Jesus is being tried, he experiences Jewish trials and Roman trials. 
And it was a high priest who handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he says a lot about high priests. If you were to read the entire book, you will find that the phrase high priest comes up over and over and over again. In chapter 2, verse 17, he talks about Jesus as a high priest being faithful, being merciful. That's the kind of high priest Jesus was. He says that Jesus was a high priest that was ordained by God forever. No high priest, human high priest, was forever. But in the case of Jesus, he was ordained by God to be a high priest forever. As a high priest, a priest would offer sacrifices. But Jesus offered himself. He's the great high priest who offered up himself on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of people, of the world. That's what he did as a great high priest. That's what he did as a high priest. And so all throughout the book of Hebrews, these readers who were Jewish Christians, who had a background understanding the significant role of a high priest, they're hearing that there is a priest named the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the high priest. And the writer of Hebrews, when we come to our two verses, and particularly verse 14, there's some particular things he wants to say about Jesus as high priest. The first thing he wants to say is that Jesus is a great High priest. Technically, the term high priest means great priest. So when the writer of Hebrews adds the adjective great, he's really saying that Jesus is a great, great priest. That he's a high, high priest. But not only that, Jesus is an exalted an enthroned high priest. That's what he's saying when he uh, mentions that Jesus has passed through the heavens. What he's declaring here is that after Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, after he was buried, he arose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say all of that, but what he does say is that Jesus passed through the heavens. That's his way of saying that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he ascended back to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. In essence, he fulfilled Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And in Psalm 110, it says, David says, that God spoke to his Lord and told him to sit here until he makes his enemies a footstool. But the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Yes, he's a great high priest, but he's also an enthroned and exalted high priest. And if that's not enough, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is an incarnate high priest. Incarnate. That's what Christmas is all about. It's all about the fact that the eternal Son of God took upon human flesh, that he dwelt among us. When the writer of Hebrews identified this great high priest who passed through the heavens, when he identifies him, he uses Jesus' human name. He refers to him as Jesus. And we know from Matthew's account, uh, when we learn about the virgin birth, that Joseph is told that Jesus' name would be Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This high priest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is an incarnate high priest. He's a human high priest. He is a historical high priest. He's one who entered into time and history. He's one whose name is Jesus. But there's something else he says, and that is that this high priest is divine. He refers to Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is being referred to as the eternal Son of God, the one who left heaven's glory and was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit and was born on Christmas Day so that the one who was in the manger was 100% God and 100% man. And so the writer of Hebrews says, this is who Jesus is. He is a great high priest. He is an exalted and enthroned high priest. He is an incarnate high priest. He is a divine high priest. That's the first slice of the bread. But there's a second slice of the bread. And that's where the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to hold fast to our confession. Why? Because Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He has more to say about Jesus as a high priest. And I don't know where you are, what your thinking is. But I know that the writer of Hebrews is trying to open up our eyes to something marvelous and wonderful about Jesus. And he's saying that we have, that we own, that we possess a, a, a high priest in the person of Jesus Christ. And because we possess Christ 
and he's ours. That is the basis for us holding on to our confession. And because Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest, that's the basis for us holding on to our confession. A sympathetic high priest. You would think, since Jesus has passed through the heavens, that he's now seated at the right hand of God, that he is distant from us, that we have no contact with him, that he doesn't relate to us. But the writer of Hebrews says that's not the case at all. He says, I don't want you to think of Jesus in such glorious terms. I don't want you to think that Jesus is just way out there, that he's unapproachable. I want you to understand that your high priest is relatable, that you can relate to him, that I can relate to him. He's not a high priest that cannot sympathize with his people. He's a high priest who can identify with them, not just through what he has done, but with what we are going through. And so he says, using two negative statements to make a positive statement. He said, we do not have. He just said what we do have. Now he said, we do not have. And we do not have a a, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a roundabout way of saying we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest that is compassionate. We have a high priest that cares about us. We have a high priest that is concerned about his people. He's not just some glorious king sitting on the throne and we bow down before him miles away from him. But no, we have a high priest that can relate to us, to each and every child of God he can relate to. And not only relate to, he can help. He can help each and every one of us. Why is that? Why is the Lord Jesus Christ relatable to us? It's because, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 15, that this one has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When you think about this glorious, magnificent, marvelous, great high priest Jesus, who can sympathize with us, the reason why is that when he was here on earth, he was tempted And we know about that. We read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it talks about the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark talks about it being 40 days and 40 nights. But we know that Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Our Lord knows real temptation. He wasn't tempted from within, 
because there was nothing that he could be, you know, that sin could be attracted to within him, but he was tempted from without. He was tried. He was tempted. And the writer of Hebrews said, I want you to understand that Jesus has been tempted. And because he has been tempted, he can sympathize with your weaknesses, with your frailties, with your shortcomings, with your difficulties, with your hardships. He can relate to the things that you go through, regardless of what you might think or what you might feel. You need to understand that the truth of Scripture is that Jesus relates to his people. He knows what they're going through. He understands, he sympathizes, he empathizes with them. He cares. He cares to the point of helping and assisting. So as the writer of Hebrews talks about this fact that Jesus has been tempted, he points out three things. He says Jesus has been tempted in all things. Second, he says Jesus was tempted as we are. Third, he says that Jesus was tempted yet without sin. Without sin. You put that all together, and the writer of Hebrews says, that we have a sympathetic high priest who has experienced temptation just like we have. He was tempted to put aside the will of his father. He was tempted to try to do the will of Satan himself. He was tempted in the matter of whether or not he was going to be obedient to God which is really the essence of temptation. When you and I are being tempted, we are being tempted whether or not we will obey God. And no matter what that temptation might be, it's many times it's hard to obey God when we're tempted. Jesus knows about that. He experienced real temptation. He experienced real temptation. But even though he experienced real temptation, we must be very, very careful that we don't press this scripture to say that every temptation I've experienced, that Jesus has experienced. That's just not true. There are temptations that I experience today, that you experience today, that Jesus never experienced. Some of you are tempted to watch pornography. Jesus was not tempted in that way. Pornography didn't exist like it does today. And there's other areas that did not exist that would be a source of temptation for Jesus. But Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted to not do the will of God. And so every temptation that you experience, everything that you might find yourself being solicited to do, Jesus understands that. He can relate to that. As the scripture says, he's tempted as we are. 
But the wonderful, marvelous thing about our high priest is that even though he was tempted as we are, yet he did not sin. Yet he did not sin. And praise God for that. Because if he was a sinful high priest, if he was like the human high priest that existed all the way from the beginning up until the time of Jesus' death, then he would have to offer sin for himself. He would have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. But because he was sinless, he could offer himself up for the sins of his people. The Bible makes it clear. Jesus is without sin. Even though he was tempted in every respect as we are, even though he was tempted like us, we must never forget he was without sin. As 1 John 3, 5 says, there is no sin in him. And because of that, he can sympathize with us. He can empathize. He suffers with us as we seek to live ethical and moral lives. Yet our flesh and the devil and the world tries to stop us. We have a Savior. We have a high priest, a great high priest who is sympathetic and understands and empathizes and can help and assist us in whatever we are going through. Those are the slices of bread that we have a great high priest and that we have a sympathetic high priest. And on that basis, the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast your confession. Don't let anyone move you from your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who paid the penalty for your sin that you might have eternal life. Here were these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians, being tempted to turn back to Judaism, to forsake Christ, to go back to where they came from. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't go back. Hold fast, tenaciously, cling to your faith in your great high priest. When you understand who Jesus is, that he is great, that he is incarnate, that he is exalted, that he's enthroned, that he is divine, that he is sympathetic. Don't you dare abandon him and go back to your old way of living. And so today we live in a culture where people are deconstructing from the Christian faith. The writer of Hebrews says, don't deconstruct Don't leave the Christian faith. Hold on. Tenaciously cling to your faith in Jesus as your high priest and in what he has done.
And so as I end verses 14 and 15, I just want to say to us, ask us the question, do we realize what a wonderful Savior that we have in Jesus Christ? Do we realize what we have and possess in him? The writer of Hebrews said, we have a great high priest. He says that we have a sympathetic high priest. And because of that, cling to your confession. The second exhortation that arises from our text, and particularly arises from verse 16, is the exhortation to draw near to your God. Don't just hold fast to your confession, but draw near to your God. And the reasons that he gave for holding fast to your confession that Jesus is a great high priest and a sympathetic high priest, those same reasons are the reason why we are to draw near to God. That's why he says in verse 16, Therefore, that is because of this marvelous, great high priest that we have, Therefore, because of this sympathetic high priest who can help us and aid aid us, he says, therefore, let me exhort you and let me exhort myself to draw near to God. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near to your God. Don't have a distant relationship with God. Don't don't act as if God is way out there and not close and near you. Draw near to your God. And let me just quickly unpack what this verse says with regards to the fact of drawing near to God that's found in verse 16. The exhortation, as I just mentioned, is for the writer in the readers. The, the writer of Hebrews is not pointing his fingers at his audience and saying, you draw near to God. No, he's pointing at his audience and he's pointing fingers back at himself. And he says, let us. This truth of Christ being a great high priest and a sympathetic high priest, that ought to affect all of his audience. But he says, it ought to affect me. It's not just good material for a sermon, but it should cause me to draw near to God. And the exhortation seizes upon language for worshipers approaching God. This terminology that the writer uses is terminology that is used in Scripture of worshipers coming to God. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about approaching God, drawing near to God, coming to God. The the picture is not some kind of static relationship between the individual and God, but the individual is approaching God. The, The individual is a worshiper of God, and they come into the very presence of Almighty God. 
Instead of being distant, it's a call to be near. And if you haven't learned this yet, if this is not true of your walk with God, you need to take hold of Psalm 78, verse 28, where the psalmist was jealous and envious of the wicked because it seemed like they were prospering. Seems like they were fat and full, while the people of God were not. And when it's all said and done, he says in Psalm 73, verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Do you hear that? You know what's best for us? It's not marriage. It's not friendships, it's not relationships. The, the very best thing for us that is better than anything else is the nearness of our God. To know that God is with me, that I'm enjoying him in an intimate, personal relationship. There, there is no better thing in all of life. There, there's no entertainment there's no activity that can give you what God can give you. And the psalmist learned that. It wasn't about a full stomach. It wasn't about possessions. It wasn't about things and prospering. He learned when all was said and done. It's the nearness of God. That's my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all Thy works. This exhortation is enlightening because it informs the child of God that he or she has access to God. Jewish Christians flipped over that. That revolutionized their lives. They came from a background where only one person on one day in one day of that year, can enter into the very holy of holies, the presence of God. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, when he says, draw near, that we have access to God. You don't have to come to your pastor, to your deacon, to your deaconess. You don't have to go through anyone else. Christ the Lord has paid the way and has given you access to God. The very fact that he says to all of his readers, whom he believes to be genuine Jewish Christians, that he says to all of them, draw near. He doesn't say draw near once a year. He doesn't say draw near only on Sunday. He doesn't say draw near, no, to a priest. He says draw near to God. Draw near. We have access to the God who created heaven and earth. We act like he does not exist. 
The exhortation demands that we draw near with confidence, with boldness, with openness. Draw near freely. One of the things I try to do after church is stand in the back so I can greet each and every one of you. Some of you go out the other door, so I'm going to get to greet you. Some of you walk by so fast I can't greet you. But certain times when my granddaughter's here and I'm greeting you, she'll just run up to me and hug me around the waist. She doesn't no, she's not hugging the pastor. She's hugging Papa. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We have access to Papa. We have access to our Father. And we need to draw near with confidence, with openness, with freedom. Not timid, not hesitant, not fearful, not scared, but coming boldly and courageously and openly into the very presence of the God who beckons us and welcomes us to come. The exhortation is to draw near to the place of grace. It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews does not say draw near to God. Technically, he says draw near to the throne of grace. So instead of saying God, he says the throne of grace because that's where Grace comes from. It comes from God. So come to the throne of grace. He doesn't speak of it as a throne of wrath or a throne of judgment. He says it's a throne of grace where you can find enablement and grace. And as he finally says, the exhortation, the goal of it, is to draw near in order that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. To find help. The writer of Hebrews understands that life can be hard. That life can be difficult, that physically we can struggle, mentally we can struggle, spiritually we can struggle, and we need help, we need assistance, timely assistance, not help that's going to come way in the future, but help that is needed right now. Help that is needed for the occasion. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you find yourself going through difficulties and hardship, if you find yourself being beaten up as you're living this life for God, come draw near to God. Draw near to him so that you can receive grace, so that you can receive mercy, and that you can find grace. Anybody here need grace? Anybody here need mercy? 
We find ourselves regularly and repeatedly in need of mercy and grace. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, draw near to the throne of grace, he's not saying come once, come twice. He's saying continually and repeatedly keep coming to the throne of God, to the place of grace. And you'll find that there is a God who wants to help, a God who's willing to dispense grace and mercy. The writer of Hebrews knew that his readers needed grace and mercy. He knew that he needed grace and mercy. And that's why he exhorted them to draw near to the throne of grace. The songwriter, the one who penned the words, I need thee every hour. He knew about the need to draw near to God. The chorus of that song says, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. He's not declaring what others need. He says, I personally, God, I need you. I'm in need of your help, of your assistance. I'm in need of your grace and your mercy. And God, I don't just need you when I'm in the walking in the shadow of the valley of death. I don't just need you when I'm on the mountain. I need you. Every hour. I need you every hour. And because he needed God's grace and God's mercy, what is he going to do? He said, I come to thee. And that's what the writer is saying. Come to the throne of grace. Come to the throne of grace by taking in the word of God. Come to the throne of grace by praying to God. Come to the throne of God by worshiping God. Come to the throne of God by serving God. These are just some of the ways that we approach the throne of grace. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. When I used to live in Santa Clarita, I took the words of this song, taped it to the wall in my office, so I could be reminded, God, I need thee. I need thee every hour. God, I need your blessings. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I come. To thee. Psalm 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in the time of trouble. What a wonderful Savior and Lord we possess. What a wonderful Savior and Lord we possess in Jesus Christ. Please don't miss out on those words. We have 
a great high priest. We do not have a priest, a high priest, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because we have that great high priest, because we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, let us hold fast our confession and let us draw near to our God. When you understand who Jesus Christ is, that he's more than just the baby who was born on Christmas morning, but that he is a high priest who is great, who is exalted, who is human and who is divine and who is sympathetic. It ought to move us and motivate us to draw near and to hold fast. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is a great high priest and that he is a sympathetic high priest. May those truths register in our minds and in our hearts. May those truths sink deep within us so that the result is that we cling tenaciously to our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and that we continually and repeatedly draw near to the throne of grace so that you can help us by dispensing grace and mercy to us. Father, help us to heed these exhortations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.